All right, and we are live. Three, two, one. Bismillah. Assalamu alaikum, guys. Welcome to the Omarpreneur Live podcast, your favorite podcast where I interview Muslim entrepreneurs at the top of their game. And in this very special episode, I have with me none other than Idil Isa. Idil, assalamu alaikum. So just to introduce Adil, guys, Adil is an advocate, she's a writer, and she's a public speaker. So she does a lot of things, and she has extensive experience in using media, communications, to advance causes with social impact. And believe it or not, she has even testified here in Canada against Bill 21 at the Canadian National Assembly hearing, a bill which prevents religious symbols such as the hijab from being worn by public workers. So she's really active in defending the rights of oppressed groups on issues including race, religion, and gender. And she really works hard to also defend the rights of Muslim women. So I wanted to bring her on this podcast to get a little, uh, a little, a little overview of her journey as an entrepreneur and how she became this voice of justice for Muslim women and for other oppressed groups, how she became this person and what we can learn from that journey. So I'm really excited to dive into all this with you, Adil. Thank you for coming on. Thanks, sorry for all the camera <laughs> shift. So it's, it's, in a good position. it's all good. That's, that's usually how these things go. This is live, guys. So it's always raw. It's always unedited. This is how we do it. But I'm really happy that you joined us. Thank you so much. My pleasure. So, Adil, the first question that we ask every single one of our guests, and I think it's the best way to start any conversation, it's, can you tell us a little bit of your journey and your, your, your story that you went through that inspired you to become an entrepreneur, that inspired you to start, you know, being this advocate that fights for the rights of others? Uh, that's a very interesting question. I would say that um, the impulse to become an activist was, was very early on. Um, so my mother is actually a professor. She teaches sociology at um, uh, Carleton University in Ottawa. Okay. And uh, as she was raising me, she very much was politically aware, um, would bring me to protests even, uh, made sure that I knew about different things happening. Like when I was young, I knew about um, some of the mining uh, the abuses being perpetrated by Canadian mining companies in South right. America. Like I, she kept me aware of what was happening in the world. Um, so I would say that it definitely was something that was taught to me by my mother. Um, my mother definitely included me in her research and would talk to me. Um, she definitely um, was my first introduction to advocacy and activism. And uh, then I would say in my school years, so in high school, I started to get involved. So um, there was an African club in my high school, um, which uh, was a, a club that uh, promoted the interests of uh, students of African origin, um, because, uh, you know, given the legacy and history of slavery on the continent, um, there's definitely some historical injustices and some um, just issues that uh, that students from those backgrounds uh, are dealing with. Yeah. So I was a part of that club, and um, yeah, I just I just kept involved in university. I got involved in my uh, school's uh, Muslim Students Association, so that was at McGill, um, and I also was involved in the uh, Black Student Network. So I always kept involved. Definitely, you know, university, as so many of us know, is a very challenging and demanding time in our lives. Yeah. Uh, but I always kept like a time slot or lots of time available for that work. Um, and I think it's very important. Uh, it's something that I encourage everybody to do and um, not to just get involved in clubs that are kind of um, 
aligned with our religious uh, convictions, so the Muslim Students Association, but to get involved in other clubs as well, clubs that are working on um, issues that you care about. Um, mm -hmm. So whether you're an environmentalist, whether you care about the environment, or whether you're interested in animal rights, anything that really uh, you feel um, speaks to you uh, is, is something that I encourage you to get involved in. I think it's so important that we all do uh, something to contribute to not only our business um, and our um, you know, self-fulfillment, but also our community. I think that's very important. 100%. And, you know, you mentioned an interesting point, which is you kind of grew up in that environment with your mother. So you were already influenced by her activism herself and, and her drive to do this. And then it, it, it infected you and it became a drive within you, which is beautiful to see. After you went through school and you joined all these clubs and uh, you kind of got involved in all of these uh, different causes and these different communities and groups that were active in, you know, fighting for the rights of oppressed people and, and, and trying to advance social change in a positive way. What did you do once you got out of that education system and you got out of these groups? Did you then kind of build your own or did you gravitate towards others that were outside of the school system, for example? Mm -hmm. Um, so, yeah, I'll give you guys a, a trajectory of what I did because it's sure. definitely non-traditional. Um, <laughs> so when I finished, I, well, here, let me start at the, the beginning to tell you guys. Um, so I went to McGill. I was, I was a very elite student. Like I had eight scholarships, including a national scholarship. Um, and so I got to um, McGill on a full ride and I was awesome. studying in the sciences. Um, so I initially was thinking of maybe studying medicine. Okay. Um, so I did my pre my first year of sciences. I did very well, um, but then and then I started to major in microbiology and immunology, and that's where I had a hard stop. I was like, I just don't like this um, degree at all. Right. Um, you know, it's a sort of degree where where they hand you a textbook and you just have to memorize the entire thing, and I, it just didn't fit with me. Yeah. I ended up switching to political science and uh, philosophy, so I completed my degree in uh, philosophy and political science. I worked for a bit for the government in Ottawa. Oh, wow, okay. So in a federal, yeah, so in a federal office. But then after that initial contract at the university, I started to travel. Um, so I think my first contract abroad was within Qatar. Um, and uh, they had this education city. They had a lot of American universities opening up campuses there. Um, and so they were, they were trying to hire a lot of people to kind of help uh, get these institutions off the ground. So I worked for Georgetown University's uh, School of, of um, Foreign Service there. And um, yeah, I was in the communications department, so I, I definitely built a career in communications. Mm -hmm. um, after Qatar, I worked in uh, Malaysia. Uh, so I was working for startups, for uh, social enterprises, which at the time was relatively new. Uh, I think... Um, the idea was, okay, either you're going to create an institution that's for-profit or you're going to create a non-profit. Um, but this new concept of, okay, you know, a lot of non-profits are having difficulty um, getting grants. So you have to reapply every year. You have to justify your expenses. Sometimes it can be a hindrance. Yeah. So a lot of social enterprises were starting to look at, okay, how do we create a revenue stream for our other activities? We want to donate to the community. We want to have, um, you know, weekly, uh, you know, uh, we want to give food to the community every week yeah. to homeless people. How do we create a revenue stream to pay for that? 
And so that's what I was kind of getting in the middle of or, or just at the, the start of. And um, it was quite interesting to see. It was quite interesting to see. Uh, a lot of companies were starting to say, okay, we wanted to have this, we have this social mission, but we also want to have a revenue stream to support it. Um, other concepts like uh, triple bottom line were coming into play where companies were looking at developing other bottom lines or goals other than just profit. Um, so that's kind of the scene I was involved in. It's a very okay. exciting scene. I definitely encourage people to get involved with startups. And I'll tell you why. So the reason why, um, as young Muslim entrepreneurs, you should get involved in startups and in the startup world is because, first of all, it's very exciting. It's very fun. So if you want to get involved with the, the business world and you want to get your feet wet, it's a great way. Uh, second of all, those teams are usually very small. Um, so if you're looking at the beginning of your career to really expand your skill set and really uh, just dive into a certain industry, it's a great way because um, I remember for certain startups I was working at, um, I was the only person in communications. So I was the marketing director, I was the writer, I was the social media manager, I was, I was everything. Yeah. And so it really allowed me to develop like international level skills in, in communications because for these small startups, I was doing everything. Yeah. It's a really, oh, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, because that's usually the startup world is because you're kind of short on resources. You have to tap into so many different activities and fields as one person because, you know, you just don't have the resources to hire a person for every single thing you need to do. Absolutely. And so, um, yeah, you can definitely use it to your advantage. You can say, OK, you know what? I'm really interested in getting involved in a startup, um, you know, uh, involved with uh, the environment. So sustainability, maybe you want to. Uh, work for a company that uh, transforms used goods into um, uh, goods that can be used again. Yeah. So, so this is one way to do it. Uh, instead of looking at a really established company, which is looking for people with a certain skill set or certain number of years of experience, try out a startup um, that can actually uh, let you in the door. They're happy to have you because they can't pay you much. Um, yeah. And then, uh, and then you get that experience, and then you move on, inshallah, to to other things. Inshallah, that's amazing. Can you tell me a little bit about how you actually ended up in, in Malaysia? Was it something that you were personally seeking out or did you just maybe get an offer or someone, you know, maybe found you on LinkedIn or they, did they reach out or did you say, I want to go to Malaysia. I want to experience what it's like to be in Malaysia. And so let me find something there because I know I'm from the people that have went. It's a beautiful country filled with Muslims. So it's definitely somewhere that, you know, we would be comfortable. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I'll paint a picture for you all because uh, Malaysia is a wonderful place, um, especially for Muslim entrepreneurs. It's definitely a Muslim country. Um, mm -hmm. So you're going to find all your um, restaurants are halal, so you can eat, you know, very easily. You know, even the fast food chains are halal, so I'm not saying you should eat fast food. Um, but uh, it's a very uh, easy uh, entry point into Asia, the Asian market, um, and it's a hub in Asia. So, so if you want to do business in Asia, uh, Malaysia is a perfect place. Um, the, the amenities are also quite modern. I mean, it's sometimes we have an impression in North America that in the East things are maybe different, but yeah. no, the, the amenities are very modern. Um, and um, I, so the way I went there, I, I mean, I don't recommend this. In my 20s, <laughs> I did some crazy things. So I don't, you shouldn't do exactly how I did it. Um, but uh, initially after my contract in Qatar, I was actually going to Thailand to because my friend recommended this retreat. Uh, so it was mainly a vacation. 
And then since I was in Thailand, I had some university friends from Malaysia and said, well, I'm in the neighborhood. Let me just go visit them. Yeah. And then one of those friends, so a friend of a friend was starting up a social enterprise and she knew I was a communications expert. She said, can you help me launch this? And so I said, yes, I'll do it. So it was supposed to be just a couple months. And then one thing turned into another. I ended up spending two years in Malaysia. Wow, I'm not saying you should do it that way, but, um, <laughs> but it's what happened to me. And uh, no, Malaysia is wonderful. I think, um, like I said, it's definitely a hub in Asia. Um, it's a Muslim country, um, but it it's, has a really interesting way that it's dealt with modernity. So it, it has a, a very healthy relationship, I think, to modernity. Okay. Um, you know how it how it maintains its traditions, but also is a great place for business. Um, and uh, yeah, so I worked for social enterprises, I worked for startups in that uh, place, and uh, I was able to travel a bit. So I went to Singapore as well, which is a great amazing. place for business. Um, so it's definitely a wonderful experience for me. That's amazing, Michelle. And I think that's kind of like the best way to travel and do it. Because a lot of people think like, man, I want to travel, I want to get out there, I want to explore the world but I have a job and you know, I have the, all these things and it's like, okay, why not, you know, go and actually use it as a way to make money and, you know, start a certain temporary life there, or at least, you know, you're going there, but you're actually benefiting from your trip in different ways because you actually have a working relationship there. So it's definitely possible. And I think it's one of the best ways to travel where you, instead of going for a week or two, uh, to, to many different places, you know, you go for a few months and you actually take in the culture. Maybe you work a little bit there with the startup or uh, a company and, you make some money while you're there too. So why not? I think it's a beautiful way to do it. Now, what made you decide to come back to Montreal? Cause I mean, if I was in Malaysia, I don't know if I'd be tempted to come back here. There's a lot of rain today. It's raining. It's a bit dark and uh, there's a lot of snow as well. So what, what tempted you to come back to Montreal? Right. So after I spent a couple of years in Malaysia, working for startups, for social enterprises, I came back to Canada for a bit, but then I traveled again. So okay. I actually uh, moved to Johannesburg for a couple of years. Um, and that was an amazing experience. So I worked Beautiful. for the African Leadership Network, um, which we, which is uh, a network in Africa of African leaders who are aiming to uh, contribute and do positive work in the continent. So these are business yeah. leaders. These are politicians. These are people who've had a certain level of personal success and then want to join together to be able to do something for Africa. Um, so I was managing communications for the network. So that's the networking group uh, on the continent. Um, and there was also a university that was launched. So they're really trying to prevent brain drain. A lot of Africa's best and brightest, they go to Harvard, they go to Oxford, they go to Cambridge. Yeah. Um, and then sometimes they end up working abroad. So um, this university is really trying to stop that. It's trying to create elite institutions on the continent uh, so that people um, are tempted to to study in Africa and then stay there, work there and contribute to the continent for historical reasons, yeah. colonialism, all sorts of things. Um, there is poverty in Africa. And so um, this organization was really attempting to create a, a pathway for people to stay in Africa and create positive change. That's beautiful. That's actually amazing. How, like, When you left, what stage were they at? Like, what were they actually working on? Was this... Was this institution in place? Were they starting to like you know uh, attract any students? What stage was this? Was this at when you went? So uh, there is a campus. There is an academy. So I, I guess it's a high school level equivalent mm -hmm. to Canada um, in Johannesburg. There's also um, a university already established. I think it's undergraduate in Mauritius. Okay. 
and uh, there is an MBA program, so a business school in Rwanda. I think they're looking at opening something in Nigeria, Lagos next. Um, but it's definitely, um, you can, I was working uh, directly for the founders, Fred Swanaker and Achaleke. They're on the Forbes list. They're really doing big things in Africa. And uh, I think that's something interesting. You know, a lot of us are the children of immigrants, uh, the children of refugees. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes that can be, there's a, a stigma around that. Um, you know, we're, we're portrayed as being somehow disadvantaged in Canadian society. But you yeah. can flip that. You can really look at that as an advantage. You have a connection to another country, another continent, another culture. And despite what the media and the news might say, um, there's a lot of interesting business opportunities and, um, you know, things happening in those countries. Yeah. So maintaining that connection is, is good. 100%. And, and really, I think what you mentioned is really the thing that they should be focusing on, which is the, the talent that grows in this country, or in that country, and, and really the brightest minds tend to leave, right? Because they see opportunity elsewhere. And I think just by fixing that problem, then you can bring so much positive impact to the country and the continent itself by having these people stay there and work to making that a better place, inshallah. So I think it's an amazing cause. I think it's very effective and it's a smart way of going about it, honestly. It's a very intelligent way of doing that. Um, now, Adil, you then ended up um, coming back to Canada. And of course, from what I know, you also featured on major TV channels here in Canada. You ended up speaking on CBC, on CTV, and you were advocating for social causes. You even were present at the national hearing for Bill 21, which, you know, not every single person can go be like, hey, I want to be president. So you had a way to get your voice heard. How did you go about doing that? And what was that like? Can you, can you share with us the, the journey behind that? Mm -hmm. So yeah, during my travels, I always kept kind of one foot in uh, Canadian politics because it's something okay. I'm very passionate about. So even while I was abroad, I would write op-eds, I would, you know, follow the news, I would see what was going on. And so, and I knew eventually I would come back to Canada because I love Canada. I was born here, raised here, and I knew that this is where I belong. So I always had that plan, I'm, I'm gonna come back. And so when I did come back, um, I definitely knew that I had to get involved with some of these bills that were being uh, used to discriminate against Muslim women. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, for me, it was unacceptable. Uh, you know, decades ago, there were universities who discriminated against black people, against Jews, not allowing them to study. And for me, it was equivalent, you know, the idea yeah. that teachers in Quebec um, are not allowed to wear a hijab. For me, it's just very discriminatory. So I knew I had to do something. Um, and uh, I was able to reach out to the province's biggest women's organization. So the FFQ, Fédération des Femmes du Québec. And I knew that, or I had a hunch that they were going to be asked to speak at parliamentary hearings on Bill 21. Now, the ruling government in Quebec is the Coalition Avenir Quebec, and yeah. they're very, um, they're very determined to uh, push through their agenda. Um, so yeah. I knew that the consultations that they would host wouldn't necessarily be to kind of like hear different viewpoints. I knew it was kind of just a an exercise in PR maybe, right. um, but they were, they were really determined to put through this law. Yeah. Um, but I knew that they would have to invite the Fédération des Femmes du Québec because it's the largest women's organization in the province and they couldn't really overlook them. 
Um, so I actually, um, a journalist at Le Devoir had a list of the people who would be invited to hearings. And I actually looked at the list, Some, somebody sent me a copy, and I actually contacted the woman who was heading up the Fédération des Femmes du Québec. And I said, listen, you've been invited to speak. Uh, can you share time with me? And she didn't even know that they had been invited. So I had scooped her. <laughs> wow. I, I had found out the, the story before her and I had shared it with her. And so because I had, you know, found out that information and shared it with her, and of course, um, as a nonprofit, they're very short staffed. They don't have a lot of people to do the necessary work. She yeah. said, okay, do you want to co-write the brief that we have to present? And I said, yeah, sure. And she said, okay, we'll, we'll share time with you. Amazing. And so um, she was granted 10 minutes, uh, an, an audience of 10 minutes at the Assemblée Nationale, the, the parliament here in Quebec. And uh, she shared five of those uh, minutes with me. Amazing. And uh, just to kind of give uh, people who are listening who might not be in Canada, we have a lot of listeners from the UK, from the US. Uh, bill 21, essentially, this is a bill that uh, the government has, has put in place over the recent years, uh, which has affected uh, not only Muslim women, but uh, people of other religious backgrounds, because it essentially prevents all religious symbols from being worn in public spaces by public workers. Uh, so that includes teachers or any other public worker that provides public services. So if you work privately for a private company, uh, then you are still allowed to wear the hijab. That is determined by that private company. But if you work for the public or for the government, if you represent the government in any shape or form, then you are prevented from wearing religious symbols. And that includes wearing the hijab, which, as we know, it's not really the same thing as like wearing a necklace with a cross on it, right? It's a different um, situation for us in a different scenario. And so uh, Sister Adil here actually went and, 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 and found out what was going to happen with these hearings to see if she could get in and have her voice be heard as a Muslim woman, which is amazing because really what your story goes to show is that if you want to get access to, to, to a certain situation or if you want to get access to maybe even a certain person, you want to get into a meeting with someone that you know you, you, want, to, you want to talk to or you want to pitch your idea or you even want to, for example, get access to something like a national hearing inside of Canada, all you really have to do is go and get all the information you can on what's happening with that situation, with that person, with that scenario, and see if you can find an opening somehow where you can position yourself advantageously to someone in that scenario. So for example, Adil went and saw that uh, this group, the Femmes du Québec, right, that you uh, worked with, they were going to have the opportunity to speak at this national hearing and she realized they're a nonprofit. They might not have as many staff as they need to. Let me reach out and see if I can maybe give a helping hand. So it was a win-win for both sides. And so that's really how it works. It's when it's a win-win situation, people are more likely to accept your offer and, 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 and you know, let you into their world or, uh, you know, their exclusive meetings or whatever pitch you want to do to a certain investor that's hard to reach. This is how you kind of get in. It's always with, within win-win situations through other people. So that's just an amazing testament to that ideal. And honestly, a very clever way for you to, to actually get in and get your voice to be heard. And that's really what it takes because, you know, comparatively to someone that just, you know, maybe let's say learned about this and says, you know, I, I want to go there and I want to speak up, but then it's just kind of like a passing thought and they think, oh, I'm against this bill. And I, you know, this is not right for us, but then what do they do about it? Right. And 90% and of people, they don't really do much about it. They just think in their minds, oh, this is not right for us. And then they move on. But you actually went and you took the steps necessary to make something happen and to actually see if you could contribute, which is 
honestly more than 90% of the world can say. And that's why I really wanted to bring you on to just share what that experience is like and what that story is like to hopefully inspire other people to do the same, inshallah. And to give people a background of you as a person, because I, you know, people might think, well, you know, she's a one of a kind. She's, this is not something that I can do. Tell us a little, a little bit about, I want to get a preview of you in high school. You know, you and you were a young woman and you said you were being influenced by your, you know, your, your mother's activism and um, you were a bit of a younger gal. Did you have this drive to fight for justice? And, and did you always have something in you where you felt like you were different? You were unique in some way. Did, did you ever get into an experience where you realized this is not what my other friends are doing or this is not something that other people necessarily gravitate to? Did you have any of those experiences in high school? Did you feel that you were different in any shape or form? Did I feel I was different? I think in high school, I mean, I was like all of us, you know, we're in high yeah. school, uh, in Canada at least. Um, you know, I'm the daughter of Somali refugees. I'm trying to negotiate between uh, my mother's culture and then what I see around me in high school. Um, you know, at that age, you definitely are looking for validation from your peers. Yeah. Um, so I definitely experienced that. I don't want to claim to anyone or have anyone think that I was immune from that somehow. No, I definitely <laughs> was not. Um, but I think that um, I just had a, I, and maybe this is partly from my religious upbringing because justice is very important in Islam. Um, there is definitely a sense in me of, of, of a love for justice and fairness. And um, there was a level of uh, courage, I guess, or ability to kind of take that feeling of, of, of a love of justice and fairness and act on it. Um, so I think that was always there. I think as I became older, I was able to refine my responses and be more effective in how I responded. But I think my love of justice, my love of fairness, and my desire to speak out or do something about it was always there. Mm -hmm. And I think that's all we can ever do is really just refine our responses, be more effective. Um, and I want to give a teaching lesson too, because I know this group is geared towards Muslim entrepreneurs. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a very important principle of, of finding common cause. You know, I think we're in a context in North America and in different countries um, in the so-called West, where we may not share the same values as uh, all of our peers, but I think it's important to identify the areas which you do agree with others, because in order to achieve your aims, you will need to find common cause with people. Yeah. Um, like, I'll give you an example. Um, the woman who heads up the FFQ, the Women's Federation in Quebec, um, who I partnered with is a transgender woman. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of um, the official lobby groups in Canada who are fighting for Muslim women may not have thought initially or instinctively to partner with this person. Yeah. But if you have a deep understanding of politics, of the lay of the land in Quebec, about who the power brokers are, who's in government and who they're listening to, um, then you're going to understand the chess pieces and who you need to partner with yeah. to achieve your aim. So I think it's very important for us to understand that as Muslims, we have certain values, certain things that we do, certain, you know, um, religious convictions. Uh, but it's important not to sacrifice those values whatsoever in any way, shape or form, but to try and figure out, okay, with my peers who may not be Muslim, 
how, what do we have in common that we can uh, work together on to achieve a good aim? Yeah. Hundred percent, and and that's really where we are able to make the biggest difference. Because, I mean, you know, there's kind of like that uh, th that saying where uh, you basically one drop in the pond doesn't make much of a difference. It makes a very small ripple, but then you pour a giant jug of water, and then it just creates a bigger ripple. And then you pour, let's say, you know, metric tons of water, and it becomes waves splashing out. And that's really the difference between one person, one drop, and then you know, a whole community of people that are fending against something there's a huge difference in the amount of ripples that you're going to make and the amount of waves that you're going to to make uh with what you're trying to achieve so yourself you went and you found that you know this is not something that i can do on my own this is not a fight that i can fight on my own and i'm going to need help and who are other people who also maybe feel the way that i feel in different ways and, and they're being impacted in different ways and even in terms of bill 21 as i mentioned earlier it's not just muslim women there's you know, Sikhs that were head turbans also that are affected, uh, Jews who were the kippah. So there's other communities that are being affected as well and that also want to fight this bill. And it, it doesn't make sense for us not to partner and, and see how we can all come together to try to fight this because it impacts us all together. And I think that's really when we can be the most powerful and cause the most waves. Um, so, Ijil, I have a question for you here, and it's, in terms of your speaking in your presentation, now a lot of people, let's say they might be hearing this, they might be thinking, you know, she's, well, your story is amazing and, and all the things that you can get into, I mean, they, they just wish they could do that. And I, every person can really, but then they might have some insecurity in regards to, well, I'm not really a good speaker. You know, I'm not really confident that I can go on there and, you know, say what I have to say in an eloquent way. So in terms of your speaking presentation skills, mashallah, yours are very refined. How did you go about developing that? How did you become a better speaker, someone who could, really uh how do you say formulate their words in a way where everyone understands and it's very clear and it's very well done mm -hmm. um so I'll, I'll tell you how my journey went yeah. but um it could be different for other, other people other people arrive at these skills in different ways uh for me my my mother was a professor um yeah. so she she had a phd in philosophy she had a very advanced grasp of the english language um, and just philosophy, history, like our, I was raised um, on like European art house films and, and all sorts of things. Um, my mom would bring me to museums, expose me to culture, different cultures. Um, and at a young age, I would read English literature, Shakespeare, all sorts of things. And I mentioned that because I think the way that I really learned how to communicate at an expert level is from reading. So just reading as much as possible, um, whether you're reading the New Yorker, the Walrus, the New York Times, um, you know, the Montreal Gazette, I'm in Montreal, whether you're reading the Globe and Mail, I think it's so important to just read as much as possible um, because it's not even uh, having read the whole book. It's just that nugget that you are going to find within that book an anecdote, a fact, something that you can use while speaking 10 years later. Um, so that's that's how I really did it, is I just read copious amounts of material, um, all different types, and um, it just gives me um, a pool to pull from that other people just don't have. Like, mm -hmm. not everyone's read Greek philosophy, but I have. Yeah. Um, not everyone has read Shakespeare, but I have. Um, and I think if you want to speak at that elite level in um, an English context, 
um, a lot of people have. You know, this is why um, you know there's some uh, undergraduate programs which are based on the great books. So they have a series of hundred books that they ask the students to read uh, okay. because it really is the foundation of our Western system uh, of thought. You know, you you have to be familiar with Plato. You have to be familiar with Shakespeare. You have to. You, there are certain references that, like, if you, for example, read the Globe and Mail, the New York Times. If you haven't read those things, there's certain references that you just will not understand. Yeah. Um, but if you have, you will understand them. And, uh, and, and so it just, it just creates a more polished output. Um, so that would be my first recommendation. Read as much as possible. Amazing. And then speak about things that you're passionate about. So if you are passionate about a certain subject, um, that's what you should gravitate towards. So trying to, to speak in a compelling way about something that doesn't really speak to you, it's going to be more difficult. Yeah. Um, so whether that's, you know, animal rights, whether it's um, in the environment, whether it's um, whatever topic you're passionate about, uh, speaking about something that you're passionate about is going to infuse um, your speech with, um, with just energy and it's going to get people to listen to you. Yeah. Um, that, that's what I would say as an initial tip. And that's amazing advice. And, and when you say read, I think the importance is to highlight, guys, like we're not talking about reading your Facebook newsfeed here. We're not talking about reading Twitter. We're talking about reading actual works of that, that contain a high level of English, right? When you mentioned things like Shakespeare, things like Greek philosophy and Plato, these, you know, the, 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 the way these books are written, it's written in a very high level of English and it uses certain words that you might not generally see people use in their everyday interactions. And so it increases your vocabulary, level of your, your richness of vocabulary. And it, as you mentioned, it increases your repertoire of, you know, maybe ideas, thoughts, metaphors, words that you can refer to and then pull from while you're speaking. And that just naturally helps you become a better speaker and as well being passionate. A lot of speakers also recommend, I want to get your opinion on this, they recommend joining things like Toastmasters or other speaking groups where they get to practice. Is it something that you did personally or do you recommend this at all? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so when I was in university, I actually got involved in the debating society, which okay. was a lot of fun. And I think what that helps you develop is um, rhetorical skills, so rhetoric. Um, and rhetoric is very important when because Basically, you use it to try and convince your audience, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, it helps you to learn how to structure an argument. Um, it helps you to interact with somebody else who has an opposing viewpoint. Um, so it's very useful. And one of the great things about it is you get shifted from one side of an argument to another. So it helps you to strengthen your, your counter arguments because on one day you're arguing for a proposition but on the other day, you're arguing against it. So it really helps you to sharpen up in terms of seeing the other point of view and what those arguments are and to be able to counter them. Um, so yeah, I was definitely involved in the debating union. I, I know there's Toastmasters. I haven't really been involved in that uh, club or okay. group, but whichever is, is easily available to you or accessible to you, whether it's a debating society, whether it's Toastmasters, um, whatever venue, um, you know, there's a lot of local TED Talks uh, and local um, venues where you can actually speak. Um, yeah. And so exploring that is interesting. Uh, always, you know, start in a way that you feel comfortable um, and then go from there. 
That's amazing. That's awesome. And to someone that's listening to this and like, all right, got it. This is how I need to practice my speaking presentation skills. Now I'm ready to go out there. Now I'm ready to start, you know, having my voice be heard. Uh, just like Adil, I'm inspired. I want to do this. What's the best way for someone who also wants to advocate for, you know, rights for their communities, for their people, or for social causes to have their voice be heard? How do they go about doing this? Now you have, of course, an extensive journey where, you know, you were throughout your entire life part of different groups and you ended up, you know, within this field. But for someone that's from the outside looking in, is there any advice on how they can get started, how they can really just see how they can contribute more to their communities, to certain groups that they might feel that they want to help? Mm -hmm. So there's really great ways to start to get involved. So there's so many nonprofit groups uh, in every single jurisdiction. Yeah. Um, and if there's nothing in your area, you can go online and find uh, you know, a group like Amnesty International that you can get involved with. Um, but I think you know small things like I, my writing career um, started, I used to write letters to the editor. So I would read an article that made me upset, you know, or, or evoked some emotions in me. And I would write a letter to the editor and editors will actually run some of them. So they'll read all the letters they get and they will actually publish some of them. So, so that was a boost as a young, very young woman, a teenager seeing, uh, okay, my name is in the Globe Mail, maybe not for an article, but I have this little letter to the editor that I've written and that they've published. So that those are some small ways you can get involved. You can uh, sign petitions. Um, organizations, nonprofits are always looking for volunteers. So you can always start by volunteering. Um, yeah, write op-eds, um, write letters to the editor, sign petitions. There's so many great ways to create and launch petitions as well, change.org and, and different online platforms. Yeah. Um, so I would say, you know, start local, mm -hmm. uh, start small. And, uh, you know, as Muslim entrepreneurs, I would also encourage you to have um, social bottom lines as well. So as you have a profit bottom line, look at, okay, how can we also uh, contribute to our community and incorporate that into our mission as well? Yeah, that, that's a huge one. And uh, we have, I mean, I'm partnered in a, uh, an e-commerce brand. Uh, we develop wooden sunglasses, but part of that mission is for every sale, we plant a tree. So for every sale that we make, we plant a tree. And it could be something as simple as that, where um, even in my marketing agency, I'm partnered with um, the nonprofit, uh, which I believe their name was Water. I have to double check again, but it's essentially a nonprofit where they, every time you donate, what they're going to do is they're going to build a water well so, somewhere that they don't have access to water very much. And so you could be something as simple as this, no matter what you do, marketing agency, e-commerce, online store, whatever it is, you can very easily add a social cause to it. You can add an aspect to it where you're you're giving back. And, and not only does that give you barakah in your business, right? We all know as Muslims, it's going to give you more blessing in your business. But also the Prophet clearly tells us that when you give in charity, that money is never, uh, it's never gone. It actually adds to your wealth. So I think even, you know, for someone even listening to this and thinking, you know, I don't, have necessarily the time to go out and and advocate in these ways there are other ways that we can contribute one of them being you know as you mentioned adding a social bottom line to your business adding something as simple as you know for every sale that you make donate a small percentage to a nonprofit that you like donate you know a small percentage to a certain cause that you want to support or maybe plant a tree for every product sold you know something as simple as that and it usually doesn't cost very much and at least you feel like you're making a difference and i think even as consumers right now 
we are slowly gravitating more towards businesses that have a purpose, towards businesses that don't just exist for profit. People are starting to get a little bit tired of that. About They're getting tired of businesses that just want to make profit for the sake of making profit. And a lot of businesses are catching on to this. Some of the big businesses, unfortunately, they're catching on and they're running marketing ploys, which aren't necessarily sincere to try to you know grab onto this trend. But it is a shift that is happening in terms of consumer behavior. And it's something that we can, you know, tailor to as entrepreneurs, and it will bring us a lot of benefit, not only in this dunya, but also in the hereafter by, you know, doing something good through the money that we earn, inshallah. So just wanted to, you know, express my support to that idea and, and give you guys some ideas on how you can go about this. Um, now, Ijil, we've been talking about uh, different topics for the last 40 minutes. And mashallah, we've explored so many different ideas. And I think already it's been such a value-packed episode, but I want to know a little bit more about you now. What's what's your vision? What do you have in store uh, for your future as an entrepreneur? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um, you know, as I've encouraged you all to read as much as you can um, and to enrich your mind, uh, you know, I'm reapplying for graduate studies uh, you know, I'm really trying to always level up and improve. Um, so that I'm doing that currently. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm also looking at, you know, this is one of the wh- reasons why I took this interview, because I'm also looking at entrepreneurship, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think when you're working in uh, the nonprofit sector, when you're uh, passionate about a cause, you really prioritize that cause. And over the years, I really have. I've, yeah. I've focused on just delivering value and, and trying to create um, social impact. But especially as I want to talk to the Muslim woman for a little bit, as Muslim women, um, there's certain barriers we experience in our careers because of how we dress or our uh, religious uh, convictions, at least in the West, so-called West. And so I think it's really important to look at entrepreneurship as a very important way to, um, if not level the playing field, then to kind of achieve our goals. Um, Because if you are equally skilled as somebody else in the same field, you won't necessarily have the same um, career advancement that you deserve. Um, And that's just a really harsh reality. And so I encourage you to look at entrepreneurship. I am uh, for for many reasons, uh, because, you know, what I learned from social entrepreneurships, if you are really passionate about something, you really have to look at revenue streams to be able to pour into that cause. Um, So I'm looking at that as well. Um, You know, I'm taking a step back actually from um, public uh, interviews uh, for for a a short period, for a time period. Um, You know, I get regular requests to be uh, a member of boards uh, for nonprofits and other organizations. I've declined many of them uh, since COVID began uh, because I am working on myself. I'm leveling up, I'm trying to learn. Um, So yes, I do project a very polished um, image. It's very much intentional. It's very much because when you're going into that um, arena and, uh, you know, for example, myself, you're facing off against the minister of justice. um, You cannot show fear. (laughs) You cannot show fear. You cannot show um, you have to know uh, the subject extremely well. And you have to project an image which is uh, very uh, professional. Um, But behind that, I definitely 
feel like for myself and for many people in the public eye, uh, there is a time period to step back, uh, to press that reset button, to to learn, uh, to upskill, and um, to to come out even better. So that's that's kind of my current uh, trajectory right now. That's amazing, mashallah. And uh, you know, we spoke before this podcast a little bit about the what it takes to 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 achieve a certain vision as an entrepreneur. And before we we dive into that, I just wanted to address the vision behind Umarpreneur even and, and this brand that, that we're creating, this podcast that we run and all the programs that we have is really to actualize what you've just mentioned, which is to bring more power to Muslim entrepreneurs. Because I feel that through entrepreneurship, and this is really the driving force behind this brand, that through entrepreneurship, we can then regain control of our lives, of our the decisions that we make with our money, and as well to become in more powerful positions where we can have a higher impact. Because, you know, when it comes to building your business, when it comes to becoming an entrepreneur and inshallah, you become successful and uh, you grow a successful company and and, and you make uh, lots of money. And, I, you know, some people might find about that. Oh, you don't make money. But the thing is, you can't do much when you have money. And you mentioned it yourself, like, what are you going to do when you don't have money? Again, can you donate? You can't donate to charity if you don't have money. You can't, you know, support causes that you want to support if you don't have money. You can't you know, pay, you know, pay, pay for your food and your lodging if, if while you go and fight for social causes, if you don't have money, it's an essential part of living life on this earth. And the thing, the truth is the more money you have, the more power that you have. And it's just the system that we live in. And so as Muslims, if we become entrepreneurs, if we grow successful businesses, if we, you know, build ourselves in a way where we can achieve these positions of power in our communities, then we can start to have more of a say. Right. People are going to listen a little bit more when we speak. People are, go are going to want to pay attention to the things that we care about. And that's just going to cause a shift in, you know, what's happening all around us. And the reason why I believe people, you know, feel like they can take advantage of Muslims and, and they can always, you know, release all these bills and uh, that go against Muslim women. And, and you know, unfortunately, advance all these causes that are oppressing our communities is because we don't have a voice, is because we don't have any power in our community, is because, you know, the people that actually do have power don't really care, right? So this is why it's so important. And this is the driving force be behind Omarpreneur. It's to create Muslim entrepreneurs, because if we have more entrepreneurs in the Muslim community, we have more people that have control over their lives, that have control over their income, and that have the power to support causes that they want to support, to make a difference, and to really, you know, say that, no, listen, I contribute in my own way. You know, and I'm an active citizen and, you know, I'm employing other citizens here and I'm making a difference. And I I don't support what you're doing as as a government, you know, and that's going to make a big difference versus someone, you know, who isn't doing much in their societies to contribute. You know, then why would they listen to them? And that's just a huge thing. And it's something I feel strongly about. So I apologize for going off on a tangent, but I, I just wanted to express my, uh, my, you know, what I thought in regards to what you said. But uh, that being said, uh you know, we talked a little bit before this podcast on focus, on, on, on having a certain amount of certainty to be able to achieve something. And I think, you know, for Muslim entrepreneurs listening to this, what is the biggest advice that we can give them when it comes to focus, when it comes to certainty, to really help them achieve their goals, to help them move forward when they might feel like they're not strong enough or they're being challenged or they're facing a lot of failures? Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so in my own experience and in my uh, journey uh, to this date to till today, um, I really have been able to, and this is this is personal. So this is how how I've done it. Um, I really do uh, rely on Allah. I think that my faith yeah. has been crucial uh, to yeah. my journey. I think that taking on the Minister of Justice, um, who's a member of the ruling party, is not something you can do if you don't have a certain level of trust and certainty. And my certainty doesn't come from self-confidence. It really doesn't. I, I know that um, you know there's a certain deal offered to us by Allah. If this, then that. So uh, um, by relying on Allah, I'm able to do things that seem out of reach. Um, yeah. And this has just been my personal experience. Having faith has been, has allowed me to have a level of certainty that's not based on my own skills and my own competencies, uh, but based on my trust in God. So that's that's really honestly, um, you know, how, how, how it's worked out for me. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think that um, keeping up a daily with of Quran, of dhikr is something that I do, uh, you know, keeping my, my prayers. I think that these things, um, you know, we, we feel like we're living in a very modern, modern times, uh, very rational times, but I think that um, these things give me a peace of mind. Uh, they give me a certain level of, of reliance and um, it allows me to face big challenges because there are huge challenges that you'll face as an entrepreneur. Um, you know, you, you could go bankrupt one year, you could, uh, your first idea might not work out. Um, and so having that well of, of trust and faith to, to, to draw from um, is, is definitely an advantage. Um, so I would say that you, you don't succeed in spite of um, you know, things that maybe take you out of your workday for five minutes here and there, or, you know, that, that keep you hungry for a month. You don't succeed in spite of that. You, you succeed because of it. It's yeah. amazing. It's beautiful, mashallah. Yeah. And that's really kind of like a shift in mindset that we need to have because, you know, especially when it comes to building your business, it's like we want it. Every minute that we have is so precious to us because there's always so much to do and not enough time to do it. And I think sometimes, you know, if we have this mindset of, I'll have to take breaks. I have to go do my prayers after this. And it's, it's a lot, it's, it, it takes me time. But when you shift that mindset to no, this is actually, this is why I'm successful. And I'm able to do the things I love because of the time that I spend in prayer and the time that I spend, you know, nurturing my spirituality in that way, then it, it, it causes a huge shift towards our attitudes going into those practices. And also it will cause a, a transformation in our experience that we take away from these practices because we all, how you go into something or, you know, the, the, the perspective that you have, the mindset that you have going into something is usually equal to what you're going to get out of it, right? If you, if you go into something with a bit of a negative attitude, then you're probably not going to get much out of that experience. But if you go in with a positive attitude uh, and an optimistic mindset, then you're going to get a lot out of the same experience, whereas someone else with a negative attitude might, might not have gotten very much. So that shift in itself will cause a a drastic transformation in the things that you get out of your life and out of your brothers, inshallah. So I want to just give a quick shout out to that. Now, Adil, we are going to dive into some Q&A. Is that cool with you? We're going to dive into some audience questions here. 
Awesome. So we have a few uh, questions in the audience already, guys. If you have questions for Sister Ideal, drop them in the comments now. As always, we're going to do some answers. We're going to do some Q&A, some questions and answers right now. And we're going to dive into some of your questions and see if we can get them answered, guys. So if you have questions for Ideal in regards to her journey, in regards to speaking, in regards to advocacy, in regards to writing, any of the topics that we've spoken about, or even herself as an entrepreneur, drop them in the comments and We'll go through them one by one, inshallah. And the first one is here with Sister Faye. And it's a really beautiful one that I want to address. Let me pull it up right now. And Sister Faye says, having been able to travel to different countries, what are three impactful lessons you got from those experiences which contributed to the woman that you are now? So three impactful lessons from your travels that contributed to the woman you are now. Um, I think through travel, for people that when you travel it's still there okay good. <laughs> uh, it was buffering for a little bit yeah i think it cut up yeah i think it just restart. So, yeah no i <laughs> okay cool um yeah so when i went abroad at least the way that i travel uh, it was always important for me to interact with the locals as an equal I think uh, it's an unfortunate trend where a lot of people from North America or Europe will go to Eastern countries and, uh, you know, maybe they'll work there and they're, they're, they call themselves expats, right? Yeah. So they lived in gated communities. They, they're, they separate themselves from locals. They demand higher salaries. They expect to be treated better than locals. I definitely did not like that trend. I did not uh, go along with that trend at all. I made friends with locals, I treated them as equals, I, I got to know them, I, I lived in their country, so I didn't kind of just do lightning trips. So I think that was very important. It helped me to get really get to know those countries. Um, and then another lesson, which is a very important one for, for women, I think, so I'm speaking to the women mainly, um, is, is have confidence in your skill level, right? I've seen, I've seen it some things. So I was at, I'll give you a little anecdote. It's a fun little anecdote. I was working for an organization um, in uh, Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur. Mm -hmm. It was a business and they were opening a social enterprise. And um, business wasn't going great. So they had hired an American consultant. Um, and it was this guy who came in, he was overly confident, self-confident. Um, and I was trying to push through this deal um, with a bunch of Canadian companies, they have um, some of the big companies, SNC Level and different companies have branches in Malaysia in the East. Yeah. So um, it was a table of these types of guys and I was having difficulty closing the deal. And I was thinking in my head, I was like, oh, maybe it's because I'm a woman. Let me just get this guy to come with me to the meeting. Hopefully um, his presence will help me close the deal. And so I brought him to this meeting and in one meeting, he tanked a deal that was in the works for 10 years. Okay? Oh, man. <laughs> this, this is the hubris. So you have to understand, as a woman, just because you're a woman doesn't mean you are less able, less capable. Um, you know, sometimes your approach of deference, showing respect for the negotiating party is the right approach. Sometimes... Um, you know, driving a hard bargain isn't the right way to do it, especially when you're dealing with with a lot of egos. Yeah. So that was a big lesson. I just it was it was incredible to see 10 years go up in one meeting. So that was oh. one experience. 
Um, and then another experience, uh, what, did, what else did I learn abroad? Um, one thing I learned just in my travels is, is to just go for it. I remember I was in working for a magazine in Jordan, in Amman, Jordan, yeah. and uh, a friend of mine um, just knocked on my, my door one day and she said, oh, do you want to come to Jerusalem? And I was like, yeah, sure, let's go. And so that weekend we took a taxi, uh, we crossed the border uh, and we visited Jerusalem. So I think sometimes it's like, just go for it. You know, you, you have these opportunities to see different places. Um, you know, uh, Jerusalem is a place of, of a lesser pilgrimage. So these, these are opportunities that come in your life. Take precautions always, you know, uh, make smart decisions. But uh, if somebody gives you an opportunity to travel, to do something different, try something new, um, as long as it's, you know, safe and acceptable to you, um, go for it. Try new things. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. We have a few more questions in store for you from the audience. Mashallah, lots of questions coming in. Guys, if you have any, now is the time. Drop them in the comments and we'll try to go through as many as possible. So we have another one here from another sister. And this is how do you balance life? spirituality and work as an advocate. So how do you balance all three aspects, the, your life, spirituality, and your work? It's a great question. Mm -hmm. It's a very good question. And, you know, I'll be honest, sometimes they are off balance. You know, mm -hmm. that's why I kind of mentioned I'm taking some time, uh, which is convenient because the whole world is kind of taking some time right now with COVID um, to press the reset button. Because sometimes one of those aspects of your life will, will take up more time than the other. You know, I think there's different seasons in our lives. Um, you know, during university, you may be neglecting your friends and your family a bit because you're studying. Um, so sometimes things do get off balance, but I think it's just important to, to shift the balance back when you can um, yeah. and reestablish a, a bit of balance. But definitely the different aspects of your life will take priority at different times. Um, you know, for spirituality, it really is the bedrock of everything I do. So if I notice that's getting a bit out of balance, I have to go and find the reset button, press it, and then just really focus on that aspect and reestablishing that. Um, I think that um, life and work, I'm, I mean, you have to steal these 10 minutes, these 15 minutes, wherever you can. You know, whether it's, you know, today I, I challenge you all to go and find a petition about an issue that you care about on change.org and just sign it. Just it's so they make it so easy where you can make an account in those uh, websites and, and you can literally just sign it so easily with a click of a button. Um, so so you, you just carve out the time. Uh, passion really helps. So identifying what you're passionate about makes it seem less like work. Um, and so that's really how I'm able to do it. I prioritize it. I'm passionate about it. And I, I make the time. Mm -hmm. And that's a big thing because a lot of people, when you talk to it, no matter what you're talking about, you know, you can say something like, why do you want you go to the gym? Or why don't you read every day? Or why don't you do X, Y, Z? And they'll always say, I don't have the time. But the truth is they do make the time to watch Netflix every day. So, I mean, the, 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 the difference is it's not that you don't have the time. It's that you choose not to do it. You know, you don't make the time for it. And I think that's a big distinction. It's making the time for the things that you care about. And that's always a big one. We have another one here from Juman, and this is a great one here. It's uh, with so much injustice and discrimination to fight against in Quebec. And I think not only in Quebec, which is where we currently live in Canada, but all over the world. So with so much injustice and discrimination to fight against, how do you keep staying hopeful and motivated to fight for change when the system is obviously against us as minorities at all levels of the government? So this is a big one. 
Mm -hmm. So I started a group on Facebook, which any Muslim women's in the group, uh, you can definitely uh, join. Awesome. Uh, women we'll organizing against uh, Islamophobia and racism. Um, awesome. And so I take hope from the sisters in the group. You know, I think one of the different ways in which I approached my advocacy in Quebec was I didn't want to just build myself up. I also wanted to build other women up because I easily could have taken all the interviews that were, were coming through in that group. But I created the group uh, along with uh, some a couple of friends um, really to mobilize uh, Muslim women who were teachers who were affected by Bill 21. And so they have collectively taken hundreds of interviews. Uh, they've built up their speaking skills. They're in the media. The media knows to talk to them. So in this version of the debate, uh, many people have noticed that there's a lot of women, Muslim women speaking on their own behalf. And, um, you know, this group contributed to it. A lot of women have uh, mobilized uh, their unions. So they've created groups within their unions to, to advocate for their rights and for their jobs. Um, so really just empowering other Muslim women has helped me to feel hopeful. What, mm -hmm. If I were to just um, contemplate our premier logo uh, every day, I would feel very depressed. You know, I would say <laughs> there's no hope. You know, this is how he feels and he's not going to change. And it's just a lost cause. But that's not what I'm contemplating every day. I'm interacting with sisters who are hopeful, who are not jaded, who are... Um, young and, and and entering this debate, entering this, um, uh, entering as activists. Um, so that keeps me hopeful. Yeah, that's amazing. That's a big one. I think that's the power of community, right? That's the power of network. Um, and that's why they say that your network is your net worth, because that's really what determines what you achieve in life. And I think that's a big one. So thank you for answering that. Uh, we have one more question, inshallah, and then, and then we'll, we'll end with that. And this question here is, if you could meet Idil from X years ago, so I guess before you, you started on this journey, um, you know, to become an, an advocate and activist like this, and, and you could tell her one thing, you know, you could tell Idil one thing to maybe help her on her journey to inspire her to keep her focused on the mission and vision, what would that one thing be? Um, I would tell her not to worry so much. I think as, as a young woman, we often uh, ruminate a lot. Uh, we overthink things. Um, you know, it's not always easy to kind of put yourself out there as a young Muslim woman. Uh, but I would say, don't worry so much. You know, you definitely, you know, you are, were created by Allah. You have a right to be here. You have a right to make your, your voice heard. Um, you know, if an issue affects you, uh, you have just as much of a license as anyone else to take up space and to speak about it. So I would say don't worry so much and, and don't really apologize for, for making yourself hard. That's amazing, Michelle. Thank you so much, Adil. And honestly, it's been an amazing and insightful interview filled with golden nuggets and topics that we've addressed that I feel needed to be addressed on this podcast because although it is an entrepreneurship podcast, every single entrepreneur, no matter their background in yourself, you're an entrepreneur in your own right, brings a certain you know value and a certain story that they share and that brings insights to the audience and i think that's huge and that that is what makes it so unique and i want to just thank you again for taking the time to share with us today your story your journey and your insights and if people wanted to connect with you they wanted to support you you mentioned your group and we'll drop a link to that and we'll also drop all the links that we can but where can people go to support you to follow you to help in the causes that you are trying to fight against 
Right. Um, so my name uh, online is Idilosophy on all platforms, so you can okay. follow me. Um, yeah, and I would just say follow my social media channels. Um, I try to post up uh, when I when I do interviews. Uh, I try to include that on my online platforms, although sometimes I miss that. Um, but I would say uh, my wish would just be as you go forward um, and you're creating your businesses, don't forget uh, to include a, a bottom line for social impact awesome. and and also look at creating businesses that don't uh, harm our community and our world in the first place. Try to make uh, businesses that really help our world and, and um, each other. Yeah, amazing. Beautiful. Mashallah, guys. So we'll drop all the links in the description. We'll drop it in the comments. If you're watching on YouTube or you're listening on Spotify or iTunes, you'll see it in the caption of the episode. And if you haven't already subscribed, guys, make sure you do. And if you haven't joined the Facebook group, also make sure you do. We'll drop a link to that, inshallah. Thank you for listening in. We'll see you next week, guys. Thank you, Adil, for joining us. Take care, everyone. Assalamu alaikum.